back to Mathematically Speaking. I'm your host, Adam Allred. We've covered a lot of ground here historically. In the span of about 15 episodes, we have covered thousands of years of mathematical feats that are the most impressive. Some that put us on a path as a species that got us to where we are today. But the person who we talk about today and his signature feat who we can see hunched over teaching geometry to some students in the painting School of Athens, sort of surpasses them all. Today we talk about Euclid. From this episode to the end of the season, we will no longer be in Greece proper. But we will have moved to northern Africa and to the city of Alexandria, the academic capital of the ancient world, home to four mathematical giants that we will discuss. Now, while geometry has been going on for a long time by now, we call him the founder or father of geometry because he is the one who formalized it. Because of that, we now call it Euclidean geometry. This episode will revolve more around the book that he wrote because we actually know very little about his life. And you may think that makes sense. The guy's from 300 BC. How could we know that much about his life at all? Of course, we won't know everything about him, but we actually know so little that it's a little bit suspicious. We have full biographies of people hundreds of years before and after Euclid, but any biographies about him have been determined to be fictional since they all contradict each other so much. The best that we can do is that he probably worked in the Library of Alexandria. Now, briefly, a moment of silence for the burning of the library and how far we were sent back due to this loss of knowledge. Thank you. Now back to Euclid. We know so little that historians now think that maybe Euclid didn't exist as one person. Rather, there were a collection of authors and mathematicians who collectively went by the name Euclid. You can imagine a bunch of mathematicians all hiding under one trench coat writing this book. So what is it that he wrote or they wrote that is such a big deal. It's called the elements, and it may well be the Bible of mathematics. In fact, the only book that has been commented on and translated more times than the elements is the actual Bible. It is made up of 13 chapters. Chapter one is made up of entirely definitions, postulates, and notions. And this chapter acts as a foundation for the rest of the book. It is built axiomatically, and then the rest of the book uses those axioms to build off of axiomatically. It's very meta in that way, but this was done intentionally. The author or authors had the belief that the axiomatic approach to mathematics is the way to do math. Many mathematicians still believe this, even though some different ways have been invented. And if you all remember back in season zero, I had a three episode miniseries on infinity. In one of those episodes, I talked about how the Catholic Church used, used geometry to justify their social hierarchy. This is what I was talking about. This hierarchy and the structure of the book, the elements, is the structure they used. The book was structured, the subject was structured, and everything was a hierarchy. Think back to when you took geometry. It usually takes place after some variation of algebra 1 or 2, but it's very but as everyone's first glimpse into something called proofs, they usually had to do with triangles. You probably hated it or loved it, there's not really an in-between, but this is the first time in math that that kind of structure was given. 
With algebra, there are some general rules to follow, like if you add something to one side of your equation, then you have to add it to the other side. But there is some freedom with those sort of rules. It doesn't say which you have to do first, which thing you have to add or subtract first. The order of operations, there's some flexibility with multiplication, division, and then subtraction and addition. But these geometric proofs don't have that kind of freedom. They were very rigid and required remembering definitions and theorems, and this structure made the learning, the learning of the subject feel very unnatural for some students. Now I'm gonna go through some parts of chapter one because that's what y'all are here for. This part might be get a bit boring, but I promise it'll get interesting very shortly. This is mainly to show how silly a strict axiomatic approach to math is, and I emphasize the word strict. First definition of elements. Is that a point? A point is that which has no part. We had to define what a dot is. Definition two is a line is a breathless length. That just means a line has no width. These are clearly simple and I'll save you the pain of going through all 23. But next are the five postulates and these are important. Number one, given two points, there is only one line that goes through both of them. It's pretty self-explanatory. Number two, to produce a finite straight line continuously in a straight line. This just means that we can draw lines on other lines. You can make a circle with any center and radius is number three. Number four is all right angles measure the same kind of angle. All right angles are 90 degrees. Okay, feels simple enough. Number five, and it's the least obvious. If a straight line falling on two straight lines makes the interior angles of the same side less than the two right angles, the two straight lines, if produced indefinitely, meet on, this, meet on that side, which are, the, which are the angles less than the two right angles. This just means if I take a line and then draw two more lines on it at different angles, those angles will be less than 180 degrees when added up. This one's the most important. The most vague, the most complicated one is foundational to Euclidean geometry. And why? Because thousands of mathematicians have tried to prove that this postulate can be derived from the other four and all the other parts in chapter one, all the common notions all of them failed. Postulate number five seems to just exist on its own, independent of everything else, but everything else is built axiomatically. Everything leads into, one thing leads into the next. That's not true for number five. In fact, in the book, The Elements, this postulate is rarely used. It's used for a few things. That's it, like it's not, it's like Euclid himself didn't really like it, I guess. Now, a brief flash forward a few thousand years to the 19th century, we have the legend of a man, Carl Friedrich Gauss, whose birthday was actually yesterday. This episode is recorded on May 1st. But more about him when we, more about him when we get to uh, the season of modern math. But he, in his genius, thought that, what if we didn't have the postulate number five? What if we did all of geometry without that postulate? And he came up with an entirely new geometry. He invented a field of math. And it's called non-Euclidean or hyperbolic geometry. 
and this stuff is wild. I'm sure you all remember that all triangles have 180 have uh, angles that add up to 180 degrees. Well, this is just false, sort of. Only triangles that exist in Euclidean geometry do. In non-Euclidean geometry, they don't have to add up to 180. They usually don't. Part of how he started to question this postulate is that Gauss decided to measure triangles out in the world since he was a trained astronomer and had the instruments and tools to do this. He had very tedious calculations after tedious calculations and could not get the angles to add up to 180 degrees, not even approximately. And this new invention of a new geometry shook the world both mathematically and philosophically. This hyperbolic geometry led to hyperbolic trigonometry with functions similar or analogous to sine, cosine, and tangent called hyperbolic sine, hyperbolic cosine, and hyperbolic tangent. And these new functions combined with calculus, with calculuses, have allowed us to see a much deeper version of the world that we live in. Math no longer became the search for truth with a capital T. Rather, it became a search for models or truth with a lowercase t that were relevant at a certain time. So sometimes triangles have angles that add up to 180 degrees, and sometimes they don't. Math is now contextual. Neither is right always, neither is wrong always, both are both. The perspective or the context matters so much more. There's a life lesson there for you. Now back to book one. Just two more things that I feel the need to cover, and I will wrap up this episode. In this chapter, we also find the algorithm for long division. If you remember from season one, the Egyptians had a division algorithm of sorts, but you could only do it by halving. And it was impressive, but very simple. This new algorithm is leagues above that. You start with the length of a string. Let's call this length of string A. Suppose I have a similar length, a smaller length of string, string B. I want to know how many times string B will fit inside string A. So I start measuring the longer one, string A, with string B, and I keep track. I keep moving the, the smaller string down, end by end, until I reach a point that either the smaller string is longer than what's left, or it is a perfect fit. The smaller bit is the remainder, but how do we know how long that remainder is? It's the ratio of what's left to the shorter string. Wonderful. Remember, all numbers are ratios in Greece. What if we don't want it as a ratio, though? Well, then we need some things so small that it can divide into anything. You need a greatest common measure or a greatest common divisor. We sort of mentioned this uh, a few episodes back when we discussed the different par paradoxes or uh, different perspectives in, of time in relation to the Zenos paradox and the Planck, the, the Planck distance. Uh, well, that common measure for numbers is one. The biggest number that goes into any given set of numbers is one. It does not have to be one, but one works for everything. Greatest common divisor. We can always count how many ones go into your denominator that you're looking that that you have. So with that remainder piece of string that we had, we can repeat the process. But now string B is the longer piece, 
and the remainder is the smaller piece. And we repeat this until we get the string, we, we get to the string of length one, the unit length string. If we go all the way to one, then we end up, then we can calculate the greatest common divisor between uh, the length of string A and the length of string B. You do it just once and you get division. We get two processes out of this one algorithm. Now the next really important thing from book one has to do with prime numbers. A prime number is just a number that can't be divided by anything that isn't one or itself. Like the number five. Nothing goes into five except one and five. Euclid proved that there are infinitely many of them. He does this by another proof method called proof by contradiction. And it's a fun little trick. Let's say I assume that all cats are purple. Then I want to go buy a purple cat. Go to the animal shelter, because remember, adopt, don't shop. And I see no purple cats. I'm then informed that there are, in fact, no such thing as a naturally purple cat. Since this information is contradictory to what I assumed, then my assumption is false. Now let's use this sort of method to prove that there are infinitely many prime numbers. So my assumption here is, is that there are going to be a finite amount of them. We can count how many there are. Now let's call the letter P the product of every prime number. Now let's add one to that number, so we have P plus one. Well, every number can be divided by a prime. So there's a prime number that can divide P plus one. Except that this prime number cannot be part of P. P is the product of every prime. We added one to it. So we have to have a contradiction here. Since we have no prime number that can divide because all of the primes are in P, P plus one isn't in P. But at the same time, we must have a prime number that can divide P plus one. Do you see the contradiction? This means that our assumption's wrong. So instead of finitely many fi prime numbers, we have to have infinitely many of them. Pretty cool, huh? Anyways, this has been Mathematically Speaking. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to support it, you can visit anchor.fm slash mathematically speaking and hit the support this podcast tab. If you want to leave me a comment or feedback of any kind, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Adam underscore Elisha. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show.